even if you are a casual reader of the Bible, or honestly, even if you've never read the Bible, you've probably heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, It's a very popular image that's made its way throughout uh, pop culture and literature and music. Uh, Here's a very famous painting from 1887 by a Russian painter, uh, Viktor Vetsnayov, I think is how you say it. Forgive me if you're an art scholar and I got that wrong, Uh, but this is a a painting. You can see the four horsemen lined up in order, a conqueror on a white horse, uh, war on a red horse, famine on a black horse, and death on a pale horse. Uh, The imagery has been used all throughout our culture for all kinds of things. So, Uh, In the 1920s, there were four defensive players in the Notre Dame backfield who were known as the Four Horsemen of Notre Dame. I am told that at Georgia Tech, even to this day, the four calculus professors who give the lowest grades to their students are known as the Four Horsemen of Georgia Tech. Uh, There are movies like Clint Eastwood's The Pale Writer that is uh, rooted in that imagery from Revelation chapter 6. There have been songs about the four horsemen, mostly by heavy metal bands like Metallica, uh, like Megadeth. Johnny Cash had one about the four horsemen. The Clash, uh, one of my favorite images in pop culture about the four of the four horsemen uh, is this one, Weird Al Yankovic, his album Alpocalypse. And uh, you can see he is riding on the black horse, the famine horse because of how many songs I think he does about food, he's replaced the famine horse with himself. So it's clear that this is an imagery, this is an idea that has woven its way very powerfully into modern culture. Uh, The four horsemen of the apocalypse come from the passage we're going to look at this morning, Revelation chapter 6. And what we're going to see is that a lot of people talk about them, but don't really understand what they are or what they mean. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are not merely general symbols for doom and gloom or sadness or difficulty, but instead they represent four very specific judgments during a very specific time in the future, in the tribulation period that we believe is coming after the rapture. The four horsemen are four of the seven seals Uh, that are opened. Remember last week we saw how Jesus Christ, the risen lamb who was slain, is the one worthy to break the seals and open the scroll that God is holding. That scroll contains God's plan for justice for those who have been hostile and unbelieving, but also vindication for his people. Jesus alone is worthy to open the seals. This week, we're going to see Jesus open those seals one by one by one, and we're going to see what, what happens when he opens those seals. The seal judgments of Revelation are one of the three sets of judgments that we're going to see in the book of Revelation. There are three major sets of judgments. The seals that we'll see today, then the trumpets that we're going to see in chapters 8 through 11, and then the bold judgments that are gonna follow later on in Revelation chapter 16. Each of these sets of judgments gets worse and worse and worse. So today, as we go through the seal judgments, you're gonna think this is really bad stuff. This is really dark stuff. It it, it may feel like it doesn't get a lot darker than the four horsemen of the apocalypse. All right, but the truth is it does. 
And if you remember a couple of weeks ago as we were talking about uh, Revelation and how it places our lives in perspective, one of the things I said is that often uh, we think things are, are really, really bad, but that's often because we don't have a historical perspective nor an eternal perspective. And so what we're going to see here in Revelation chapter 6 is how God is going to begin this process of judging an unbelieving world and then redeeming and vindicating his people who have trusted in Christ. So there's gonna be some darkness in this passage and in some of the passages that are gonna come. Uh, it's also gonna be uh, uh, filled with, in some respects, the grace of God. Right? There's a really dark spot, as I said. Um, throughout the course of these judgments that are coming, the three sets of judgments, let me just give you some perspective. Um, about two-thirds of the, of the world population will die. Just to put that in perspective, World War II had more casualties than any other war, uh, as far as we know, in human history. 56 million casualties. These judgments, if we, if we use today's population of about 8 billion people, uh, these judgments would kill about 5 to 6 billion people. Billion with a B. So huge judgments. And yet in the midst of it, we're going to see the grace of God still on display. This is what we're going to see this week. God's judgment will arrive, but his grace will never depart. God's judgment will arrive. It is certain and it is right. But his grace will never depart. Even in the midst of judgment, God's grace will remain. Revelation chapter 6 through 18, I think one of the reasons we're called to study and read these passages is so that we can get a deeper understanding of the heart of God, that he is holy, yes, that he will, that he will vindicate his righteousness, and that he will judge those who refuse to obey and trust in Jesus, but we also see his grace. So we can see God's grace never departs even as his judgment arrives. And we're called as his people to reflect God's holiness and God's grace, to proclaim, yes, his righteousness, but also to proclaim his judgment and his grace for all who will come to him and trust in Jesus. God's judgment will arrive, but his grace will never depart. That's what we're gonna see in Revelation chapter six. Before we get there, though, before we dive into detail in Revelation 6, I want to put it again in the context of our end times study. I know some of you were probably not here three weeks ago when we went into some detail about what we believe is coming in the future. Even if you were here, there are some things that I, I reserved for this morning that we didn't have time to get into that morning because my sermon was already like 56 minutes or something. So uh, we're going to go into a little bit more detail on some things this morning before we dive into Revelation 6. It's all going to connect because I want us to understand how Revelation 6 through 18 fit into the broader scheme of what God is going to do. You remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how right now we believe we are in this church age, this, this undefined period of time. Before Jesus will, will come and he will rapture the church, those who have trusted in Jesus during the church age, the dead will rise from their graves, those who are still alive will rise in the air to meet him. Paul talks about that, we'll see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll look at that in just a minute. 
Following that is the great tribulation period of seven years. We're going to talk about the passages that talk about the great tribulation in just a moment. Some of you have asked me over the last few weeks, but aren't there people who interpret the book of Revelation differently from you? Of course. There are several different major views on the book of Revelation. So, for example, some people hold what's called a preterist view of the book of Revelation. Uh, the preterist view, if you're a full preterist, you say everything in the book of Revelation really just describes what happened in the first century. Prior to 70 AD, AD 70, when Titus of Rome uh, destroyed Jerusalem, the city. Right, so, so a preterist is gonna say everything's already happened. A full preterist will even say even the return of Jesus has already happened. Jesus is reigning now through his church. There's no future return of Jesus to look forward to. That's the preterist position. Then there's a historicist position that basically says the book of Revelation lays out the history of God's people in the church. Jesus is reigning in the church, so they typically don't believe in a future earthly thousand-year reign of Jesus over the nation of Israel and over his people. Instead, they say Jesus is reigning now, and what Revelation describes is church history throughout the eras. Maybe they believe that it is cyclical, that it repeats, so the seals, trumpets, and, and bowls are just three different ways of explaining the same judgments. Then you've got the idealist position, which just says the book of Revelation is a, is a struggle between good and evil, and the symbols don't really mean a whole lot. It's just a struggle with lots of symbolism about good and evil. And then there is our position, which we've talked about, which is the futurist, which is that we believe that the book of Revelation describes things that are going to happen in the future that have not yet been fulfilled. As we saw, we believe that because of Revelation 1, 1 through 2, where John says this vision was given to him to show what is about to take place, what's going to happen. Revelation 1.19, Jesus says you got to write down the things that, that were, the things that are, and then the things that will take place after these things. And we talked about last week, Revelation 4 all the way up through 22, we believe is the things that will take place. The book of Revelation gives us its own purpose to tell us what's going to happen. So why do we hold that there is a future seven-year tribulation that is preceded by a rapture of the saints? I want to talk about that again for a few minutes this morning. This is going to get as sort of theological and, frankly, mathematical as we are going to get. Uh, those of you who have math anxiety, don't worry. Uh, the figures have already been calculated for you. And I'm not going to predict when Jesus is coming back, but we're going to go backwards and we're going to see how, how prophecy has been fulfilled and leading us to this conclusion that the, the next thing on the timeline is the rapture of the church followed by a seven-year tribulation period. And that's what we think is beginning in Revelation 6. All right, rapture of the church. We mentioned 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says, for this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, I hope that's us, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died in this, in this age. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Harpazo in the Greek, rapturo in the Latin, that's where we get the idea of rapture caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always be with 
the Lord. We believe this describes a different event from what we see in Revelation chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 20, Jesus comes all the way down to the earth. Here, Jesus' people go up to meet him in heaven. It seems like a different event, a rapture that precedes the final second coming of Christ. Now, Jesus himself predicted that in the end times, there would be a great tribulation. He said in Matthew 24, for then there will be a great tribulation such as, not, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. So Jesus says, uh, before he comes, there's gonna be a great tribulation period, a great period of trial and suffering and judgment and difficulty on the earth. Now, why do we believe that's a seven-year tribulation period that precedes the second coming of Jesus? There's a few reasons. Some of them we'll see as we move through the book of Revelation. The biggest reason, and this is where we're gonna spend a few minutes this morning, the biggest reason we believe in a future seven-year tribulation period that is described in Revelation 6 is because of Daniel chapter 9. And I'm gonna show you Daniel chapter 9 this morning because it is one of the most significant Old Testament prophecies related to the time of the end. And let me just give you a little bit of quick background. Remember, Daniel and his friends, they're in exile in Babylon. Daniel's written about 600 years before the coming of Jesus. And Daniel is praying, God, how are you gonna vindicate your people? What are you gonna do in the end times to redeem us from the nations that persecute us, from people who are hostile to God? Well, as Daniel is praying, the angel Gabriel appears to him and says, I'm gonna show you what's gonna happen at the end. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen at the end. Right in the midst of that prophecy, Gabriel says this to Daniel. The archangel Gabriel says this. He says, Daniel, I want you to know, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So Gabriel says all of this stuff's gonna happen. All of the end stuff, there's gonna be atonement for sin, there's gonna be an end of prophecy, we're gonna anoint the most holy place. In other words, all of the end times are gonna come after 70 weeks, or literally 77s is the way most people understand this. 70 times seven, you can do that in your head, right? Carry the six, 490. All right, 70 or four, whatever it is. You're gonna carry whatever number, you're gonna get 490, all right? He goes on and he says, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, so 69 weeks. It will be built again, that is the city, with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. That is the Messiah who is coming will be rejected by his people. After these 62 and seven weeks, he will have nothing. And then the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. I mentioned a moment ago, this event happened in AD 70 when Titus of Rome came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And then he goes on, he says, and its end will come with a flood even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined, and he will make a firm covenant with the many 
for one week. That is this prince who is to come. But in the middle of the week, at the three and a half year point, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction. So halfway through this last week, this last seven years, is going to come a time where this prince who's going to come, he's going to persecute the people of Israel. He's going to break his covenant with them. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, I want you to follow with me for just a minute. If you're scratching your head and you're going, okay, you lost me. Daniel said, or Gabriel says to Daniel, there are 70 weeks ahead, 70 sevens, 490 years. 69 of those years are going to happen before the Messiah is, is cut off, before the Messiah is rejected by his people. Now, here's where some of the math comes in. By the way, I did not do this math myself, if you're interested in looking at it in detail, Harold Honer, uh, one of my former seminary professors, wrote a book called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, if you're looking for a page-turner to read on a Saturday afternoon. All right, but, but here's, here's the math, okay? Gabriel says there are 69 sevens before Messiah's rejection. So that would be 483 years. 69 times seven is 483 now, the Jewish year only had 360 days. That's really important when you're talking about a span of almost 500 years. When you take those 483 Jewish years, you multiply it by 360, you get 173,880 days in these 69 weeks. That's 476 of our years, Gregorian years, of 365 days. Now, when was the decree to rebuild Jerusalem that started this? Well, Nehemiah tells us, Nehemiah chapter one, he says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes' reign, if you date this from Nisan day one, right, on the Jewish calendar, that takes you to March 5th, 444 BC, when Artaxerxes of Persia says, okay, y'all can go rebuild Jerusalem. That's the beginning of these 69 weeks. Now, Watch this, if you take March 5th, 444 BC, and you go forward those 476 years, you end at March 30th, AD 33. All right, this is almost certainly the date of Christ's triumphal entry. It is a Monday in AD 33, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and he's accepted by a small group of followers, but he's rejected by the leaders of Israel, who hatch a plot to kill him and cut him off. Now, those dates might adjust uh, a day or two here and there to the actual date of the crucifixion, depending on the exact date in Nisan when you think Artaxerxes issued this decree. But basically, it takes us from March of 444 to March of AD 33. But notice the 70th week, the last seven, is still to come. Why? Because remember, Gabriel said, after the Messiah is cut off, the, the people of the prince to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. When did that happen? A.D. 70, some 37 years after Christ's crucifixion. So we know there's a gap between the 69th and 70th week. We just don't know how long it is. We don't know when the 70th week starts. This is why we hold that Revelation chapters 6 through 18 tells us about that 70th week. And in fact, throughout Revelation 6 through 18 and Revelation 12, uh, John is going to refer to the 1260 year, days of that last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. Now you say, man, that's a lot of stuff. But, but, but here's, here's the, the big picture I want you to understand. 
if God's prophetic timetable has been this accurate to this point, we can trust it to be accurate for the future. If God's prophetic timetable has nailed the death and resurrection of Christ this carefully, then we can trust it to be accurate for the future. And so we believe that 70th week is still to come. It's also important to realize, readers of the book of Revelation in the first century, remember I told you, there's tons of references to Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah, right, all throughout the book. Readers of this book would have been familiar with those books. And John refers to them all the time. All right, so we believe Revelation 6 then is the beginning of this period of judgment that is designed to bring the people of Israel to believe in their Messiah and to judge the nations and the people who oppose the Messiah. It is a final display of God's power and God's holiness. And what we're going to see is in the midst of it, God will still be offering grace and mercy to anyone who will believe. Judgment is always God's final step, the last resort. He doesn't lead with judgment. He leads with righteousness and with grace. But there is a time coming when history will not stretch in front of us infinitely forever. But God will kick off this prophetic timetable and this final week will begin. What we're going to see in Revelation chapter 6 then this morning is God's judgment will eventually arrive. It is coming. I want you to follow with me. Revelation chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. Now remember again, Jesus is breaking these seals, and then one of those four living creatures with each one uh, speaks and says, come. Right? And I told you, there's three sets of judgments. Uh, this is the first one, the seal judgments. Uh, it's, it's important to notice there are seven seal judgments. The seventh seal contains the trumpet judgments, and the seventh trumpet contains the bowl judgments. So these, these judgments, they're going to increase in intensity, and they telescope. And one of the things, again, we're going to see, this is going to be the worst period in human history up to that point, but it's not the worst period that is, that is coming. And often, again, we lack historical or eternal perspective when we think about bad times. Let's be honest, the last few years, for, for a lot of people, for our country, it's felt like bad times. There's been political unrest and, and racial division and economic instability and supply chain disruption and inflation and an increase in deaths of despair and, and all of these markers where we go, things are getting really bad. What Jesus told us in Matthew 24, you need to look at those things as just the beginning of birth pains. That's just the beginning. The worst times are still yet to come. All right, this is like if you have a toddler and you tell them that they cannot have Chick-fil-A for dinner, but they must have pork chops instead, and they fall on the floor. Right? And they cry and they're gnashing their teeth and they're rolling around and they're, they're wailing. And you, internally as a parent, you're kind of rolling your eyes and you go, uh, this is not that bad of an event. Right? Your life is actually going to get a lot worse. Okay? <laughs> but to that child, it's the worst thing that's ever happened. So perspective. Perspective, right? Revelation 6, up to this point, we're looking at kind of the worst stuff that's ever happened, even if we were in the worst era of human history right now, 
the judgment of God as it comes is going to increase the intensity. And in fact, as each set of judgments goes on, the intensity will increase. Verse 2, I looked and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So the first seal is broken, and John sees a white, a man on a white horse with a bow, and he's going out to conquer. Some people believe this is Jesus because Jesus also rides a white horse in Revelation 19. I don't believe this is Jesus here for one simple reason, that when Jesus comes to rule and to reign, his reign will usher in peace and joy. This person on this white horse, when he comes to conquer, his reign brings in death and famine and war and destruction. I believe that this first horse represents the beast that we're going to see later on in Revelation chapter uh, Revelation. The, he's going to be mentioned several times, Revelation 12 and other places in the book of Revelation. The, the Antichrist, he's fearsome. He's holding a bow like the Parthian warriors from a nearby nation that the Jewish people and the Roman people were deeply afraid of. He's a fearsome warrior coming to conquer on a white horse. Verse 3, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come, and another, a red horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So a horse that is red like blood, and he brings war into the world as nations, as they've always done, nations battle for power and jockey for position. And as the book of Revelation goes on, things will get more and more violent during this tribulation period. More and more death and more and more judgment is going to come, and war is a part of that. So this second horse, a red horse, indicating war. The third one, verse 5, when he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. To give you some perspective, a denarius was one day's wages for an ordinary day laborer. A quart of wheat or three quarts of barley, barley tended to be uh, a cheaper type of grain, a quart of wheat, three quarts of barley could feed one person for a day. So the famine here is, is at the point that there's been inflation where it, it would cost you all your earnings just to eat for a single day, let alone your mortgage or your rent or any other bills or any clothing or anything else you need. It would take all that you needed for you to eat for a day, let alone your family, right? One, one commenter I read on this said this represents about 1,200% inflation. Now, if you think the eight and a half or nine that we have right now is bad, this is worse. Right, a few weeks ago, uh, my wife ordered some groceries and she said, you won't believe how much it cost me for 20 tortillas, just flour and water. It was like 650, whereas a year ago it was like 450. But imagine that it was $50 or $60 for ground beef. That's the level of famine we're talking about. Now, the, the, the imagery here, it says, I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures. It, he talks about the inflation, and then he says, do not damage the oil and the wine. It's not exactly clear what that means, but most likely oil and wine, they were rich people's crops. 
They had deep roots, they lasted longer, and only those who had estates and lots of wealth could afford oil and wine. What it's saying at this point in the tribulation, it's hitting the poor people harder than it's hitting the wealthy people. There's a limit to this famine right now. That's not gonna hold. Verse seven, the fourth horse. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. So the fourth horse brings death in his wake. As a result of the war, as a result of the famine, as a result of disease and pandemics, and then the worst one to me is as a result of wild beasts. There are lions apparently and, and bears and, and other, uh, other predatory creatures roaming the streets killing people. To give you again perspective, a quarter of the earth, that's about two billion people in terms of today's population. A quarter of the earth wiped off the map just like that. So we have war, we have famine, we have death, we have pestilence, we have the wild beasts of the earth. The one on the horse, his name is Death, Hades is following with him. Hades was known as sort of the the holding place of the dead as they awaited judgment. The underworld, so to speak, where people went to await the final judgment. So this final horse just brings death in his way. God's judgment is coming. Seals five and six take us from earth now to heaven. Follow with me, the fifth seal. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. Now, it's important to remember, we talked about, we believe the church will be raptured before this tribulation period. So who are these people? Well, these are people who trust in Jesus during this seven-year period who are martyred for their faith because as they believe in Jesus and they worship Jesus and they proclaim Jesus, that becomes increasingly unpopular in a world that is being judged by the wrath of the Lamb. We're gonna see this in a moment. So to align yourself with Jesus is to risk persecution and martyrdom. So they're being martyred throughout this tribulation period. And they're crying out for vindication. And God says to them, you need to wait just a little while longer until the full number of your servants, of your fellow servants, have been martyred for the name of Jesus. It's a hard time. But I I want you to see it's also a time of grace. That even after the church is no longer in the picture, which by the way, the church is mentioned 19 times in Revelation 1 through 3 and is not mentioned again until chapter 19. Even as the church is gone, God's spirit is still working to draw people to himself. They're probably under the altar as an indication that their lives were not wasted, but they're seen as a pleasing sacrifice to God, an offering to God. God says, vindication is coming, just wait. 
And then the sixth seal, verse 12. Then I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. This is a terrifying scene. Earthquakes and storms and meteor showers falling from the sky, the sky split apart, and people are running to hide in caves and under rocks to say, save us from the wrath of the one who's on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. And again, this is just the first series of judgments. God's judgment will arrive. But here's what we see in the midst of it. As I mentioned before, God's grace still remains. I said a moment ago, even during this period of time, there are people trusting in Jesus. Notice the the people who are hiding in the caves and the the mountains and underneath rocks here at the end of chapter 6, they have no doubt what's happening. They're not looking at the sky going, why is the sky falling literally? They understand exactly where it's coming from, don't they? This is the judgment of God. And yet notice how they respond. We're going to see this throughout the book of Revelation. They don't respond in faith. What would be the appropriate response? God, save me. I believe in Jesus. Clearly there are people doing that. But instead they hide. This is fear without faith. And yet these judgments, which as we've said, are always God's last move, God's last resort to draw people to himself. These judgments are drawing people to Jesus, but most will refuse to repent. It indicates that the issue of unbelief is not ignorance, it's stubbornness, it's unrepentance. They refuse to believe because they don't want to believe that Jesus is Lord, that the risen lamb is king of the universe. And so they think they can hide. When I was a kid, and, and you may have had this experience as well, my dad, we liked to wrestle with my dad. My dad was actually a wrestler in high school, and so up to a certain age, I had two brothers. Dad could take all three of us single-handedly. Uh, right when we got to about middle school, high school, he would decline our invitations to wrestle with increasing frequency out of fear of getting hurt. But when we were young, dad would always win. And if he would have you in a, in a hold uh, and you couldn't get out and you were beaten, sometimes dad would go, say uncle. Say uncle. Some of you, some of you remember that. Maybe you had a brother that did that. You had, you had to say uncle before you could be released. I, I don't know where that comes from. I always wondered, where does that come from? So I did some uh, Google research this week to figure out where does that phrase come from, and nobody knows for sure, but some people think it is a mispronunciation of an old Irish word, onacol, which means mercy or deliverance. So so somewhere along the way, onacol, deliver me, turned into uncle. And the idea is the pain 
should make you cry out for mercy. The pain should make you ask for deliverance. If you bow up, the pain might increase. Right? And that's what we see here in the tribulation period. These judgments are terrible. But even in the midst of it, God is extending the offer of eternal life. It would be better to avoid them in the first place. But even in the midst of them, God is extending the offer of grace. And yet instead of crying out, deliver me, give me mercy, most harden their hearts even further. This should remind you, by the way, of uh, the plagues, the ten plagues upon Egypt. Pharaoh has no doubt that it is God tossing down the plagues on his people to get him to let the nation of Israel go. But what does Pharaoh do? He hardens his heart. I won't believe. I won't submit. God's judgment is right. And it is coming because for millennia, God's people have been crying out for justice and vindication and redemption. That cannot be accomplished without judgment on those who have been hostile to or refused to believe in Jesus. But it always comes with an offer of grace and mercy. Again, one of the main reasons we study the book of Revelation is to understand the character of God. This book then ought to be a reminder, first of all, that, that history does have an end point. That, that there is a moment when, when everything will eventually come to an end. And judgment will come and there will be redemption for God's people. And so, of course, Revelation chapter 6 through 18 ought to push us to ask this question. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you accepted the grace and the mercy that's being offered right now? As long as you are alive, there is still hope. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone that he died for your sin and he rose from the dead so that you can know that you have eternal life? And if you do then, will you share and reflect that grace to those you know? Revelation takes us to some very real places when we start to think about the future. I want to close then uh, with this. I I just would, would challenge you this week. Who are the people you know who don't know him? Who are the people you know who need to hear this offer of grace and mercy? Why is Jesus waiting? We saw that in 2 Peter 3. He's not slow. He's patient. He was patient with you, and he is patient with your friends, your family members, and those that you know who don't yet know him. Will you share with others the offer of grace because Jesus died and Jesus rose? All who trust in him can have eternal life and forgiveness of sins and the peace knowing that we will one day be redeemed into eternal life with our Savior. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful for your word. Even when there are hard truths or challenging truths, we want to hear it and we want to obey it, as James told us. 
Father, we thank you for this time in your word, and we pray that you would deepen our understanding of it. Lord, we ask if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know Jesus, that your spirit would work to draw them to you right now. Father, give us boldness and courage as we proclaim and share the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray all of these things. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.